Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. My name is Craig Johnson, and this week I'm bringing to you news from the United States from several legal cases involving members of the alt-right from Brazil, and a see you in hell from the United States during the World War II era. Probably the biggest contemporary event on the right wing in the United States right now is the recent Proud Boy rally in Portland, Oregon. Uh, for those of you who have been paying attention, you're not surprised that Portland is the site of this kind of violence, uh, this kind of altercation between the extreme right wing and leftist and anarchist counter protesters. Uh, Portland has been the epicenter of this uh, essentially for an extremely long time, uh, really since uh, ramping up in the wake of the Donald Trump uh, election and campaign and his his victory and presidency. Uh, this most recent rally last Sunday uh, was held by the Proud Boys at an abandoned Kmart. Uh, and it was in support of people who they have described as political prisoners. Uh, these are members of the Proud Boys who have been charged with participation in the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, uh, and also people who participated in other political activity uh, in and around Washington, D.C., in and around the uh, presidential election like essentially between the election and uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. Uh, specifically, one of the Proud Boys leaders, Enrique Tario, who is uh, one of the national leaders of the organization, uh, has been charged, uh, formally charged, uh, with burning Black Lives Matter banners and other uh, materials at a uh, historically black church in D.C. Uh, he's received a five-month sentence. Many other members of the Proud Boys and the extreme right in general have also been charged uh, and or are awaiting trial for this. Uh, and so the Proud Boys rallied uh, supposedly in defense of these, you know, political prisoners. Uh, this was essentially a, you know, an excuse for exactly the kind of violence that they typically participate in, you know, not not particularly different. Um, they assaulted counter-protesters. Um, they carjacked people. Uh, they ripped people from the from the interior of their vehicles. Uh, they flipped cars. Um, as the rally ended at the Kmart parking lot uh, and moved into downtown Portland again, the site of many altercations between the right wing and counter protesters, uh, gunshots uh, occurred between the two factions uh, of the protest. Uh, at this point, Dennis Anderson, uh, who is a member of the right-wing side of the protests, has been arrested. Uh, he shot at Antifa demonstrators uh, in Portland on Sunday. Reports are that um, Antifa protesters shot back at him, or at least one shot was fired back at him. Um, however, the story is still unfolding here. So that's what's been going on in Portland. Uh, another update on a legal case regarding the right wing, this one a more classically alt-right event uh, from before Donald Trump's election. Uh, we have the, um, the failure of the appeal of Dylan Roof. Uh, for those of you who don't recall, uh, Dylan Roof shot uh, about a half a dozen people at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, North Carolina, in 2015. Uh, Roof is a 
textbook example of an alt-right terrorist um, who attacked black people because of their race and because of his belief in the superiority of white people uh, and his belief that black people were taking over the country, you know, um, white replacements theory, those sorts of things. Those were his motivating ideologies. Uh, Roof represented himself in court, uh, which, of course, was a massive and horrible failure. Uh, he was convicted and was actually the first person sentenced to death uh, for a hate crime charge. Uh, for a federal hate crime charge. Um, Roof's lawyers, he got some lawyers after he lost his case, uh, sent uh, his case to the appeals court uh, where his sentence was upheld. Uh, so unless something changes, you know, maybe he tries to go to the Supreme Court, uh, Dylan Roof will be executed by the United States uh, for his racist murders. Outside of the United States, we have well, what's actually another legal question, uh, this time regarding the right wing in Brazil. Um, we have reporting from O Mundo, which is a prominent Brazilian newspaper and news source, um, that several allies of uh, the president of Brazil, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, have received impunity uh, for their, well, very real crimes. Uh, so here's what happened. Uh, these allies of Bolsonaro participated in political rallies alongside Bolsonaro in the state of Rio de Janeiro. That's Rio de Janeiro. Um, in Brazil, that's extremely illegal. It is extremely illegal for members of the military, for standing members of the military, uh, especially top brass, these are general types, uh, to participate in political rallies, in partisan political rallies. And that's because of that country's history, extremely long and bloody and very recent history of military interventions in government. Uh, Brazil was under a military dictatorship throughout much of the late 20th century. We're talking from the 60s into the 1980s. Uh, Brazil also has a very recent history of right-wing intervention in politics uh, that essentially, you know, arguably can be uh, cited as the cause of Bolsonaro's presidency, uh, with the ouster of Dilma Rousseff as the president of Brazil a few years ago. So that's the story. Uh, these military leaders, uh, General Pazuelo and uh, Brigadier Lieutenant uh, Batista Jr., uh, participated in political rallies with Bolsonaro in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and that's illegal. You know, they should have been reprimanded for this. Instead, uh, the branch of the Brazilian government, which is charged with investigating these kinds of crimes, opened an investigation conducted no investigation at all uh, and immediately acquitted them of any and all participation. This is an obvious signal. Um, more than just their participation in this political rally itself, um, more than the danger and threat that that poses, you know, just like military leaders participating in and getting involved in politics, it's a clear signal uh, to all the people of Brazil. It's a signal to military leaders uh, that at least some of them are openly backing Bolsonaro, an extremely right-wing president. It's a sign to those military leaders that uh, the Bolsonaro government is willing to break the laws in its own interests, you know, that it's willing to ignore the fact that this is an illegal act. Uh, it's a sign to those military leaders that if they break those laws and get involved in politics, the Bolsonaro government will protect them 
It will protect them from prosecution. And to other people in Brazil, it's a sign of something much more sinister, an alliance between a right-wing civilian politician who actually has personal ties to the military and a personal history in the military. Uh, So uh, a tie between this civilian politician and the sitting branches of the Brazilian military. Now, to those of you who are familiar with the history of Brazil that I just laid out, you know, of military intervention in politics, this is extremely disturbing. And it's especially disturbing given what is coming in Brazil in a couple years. The next Brazilian presidential election will very, very possibly be primarily between sitting president, Jair Bolsonaro, or some stand-in, and former President Lula de Silva, who is an extremely popular socialist workers' rights candidate uh, and uh, former president of Brazil. What Bolsonaro and his allies are indicating is essentially that if they are pressed, they are willing to do extra legal things. They're willing to break the law in order to win this upcoming election. Exactly how far they are willing to go in that remains to be seen. Obviously, we don't know. Uh, it's possible that they would stop short of something like an open coup or open intervention, but it's possible that they might not. And any kind of blend or show of force and violence, or the potential show of force and violence, is, you know, it's a real threat in a country like Brazil, uh, where these things are in living memory. There are many people in Brazil who are alive today and who were the victims, the specific victims of specific violence by this military regime, not to mention the millions of lives who were changed and altered forever by this military government. Uh, So this is something we're going to have to pay attention to and advocate for and fight against. Closing out this week's episode, as I do almost every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the death of a prominent right-wing figure in history. Like I told you in the intro, this week we're going back to the World War II era in the United States. I'm talking about Charles Lindbergh. Now, if you haven't heard of him, which I guess might be kind of a surprise, uh, Charles Lindbergh is most famous for being the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, He did this uh, in 1927, flying solo between New York City and Paris. Uh, There had previously been a a transatlantic flight from Newfoundland to Ireland, which are much closer. Uh, And of course, his flight was, you know, an actual potential commercial airline, Uh, you know, a, a route that that commercial air travel might one day take and does indeed take now, right? You know, New York to Paris. Uh, He did this alone in 33 and a half hours. Uh, This is after a long um, early life uh, of being a pilot, uh, sort of like a a jockey pilot. Uh, He spent most of his youth as an aviator and a barnstormer, uh, which means that he flew planes through barns and did other sort of like theatrical tricks um, and was also an early airmail pilot and was chosen to make this flight uh, because of his prowess. He was was an extremely gifted aviator. And additionally, uh, he is a noted anti-Semite, Nazi sympathizer, and an opponent of the United States' entry into World War II against Nazi Germany. And that's what I'm wanting to talk about now. Uh, After his massive success um, 
After this massive success of the transatlantic flight, uh, he becomes incredibly popular. Um, he is the youngest person to receive the uh, Time Magazine Man of the Year Award. Uh, he remains to this day the, younger per- the youngest person to receive this uh, this acknowledgement. And he travels around the world being, you know, regaled and celebrated uh, almost everywhere he goes. He spends a lot of time in Germany um, because Germany... Uh, was then and remains today uh, a you know one of the centers of engine and aircraft construction engineering of that kind and also as a popular rich person in the united states at this time uh lindbergh was like many uh enamored of nazi and fascist ideology to one extent or another uh lindbergh was a known anti-semite Uh, and talked extensively about, you know, Jewish financial interests creeping around the world, you know, sucking power from where they don't deserve to be. Uh, This is very clear, disgusting, and extremely, unfortunately, normal anti-Semitic language uh, used at the time. Uh, He joins, in 1940, the America First Committee. Uh, the America First Committee, yes, that, that is where the slogan comes, America First. Uh, the America First Committee was a, a neutrality committee uh, formed in the United States uh, upon the you know, initiation of World War II between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, France, and the United Kingdom. Uh, the America First Committee, you know, presented itself as a neutrality committee, as I've said before. Um, They didn't think that the United States should intervene. Why didn't they think the United States should intervene? Well, essentially because they thought that the Germans uh, had some points, was their essential claim, right, Uh, that Germany had been downtrodden by World War I and deserved to come back. Uh, Many members of the America First Committee were out anti-Semites and were sympathetic uh, to the logic of the Holocaust. Although Lindbergh himself uh, later regretted his association with any sort of uh, um, Holocaust permissiveness. Uh, Lindbergh gave major speeches in Madison Square Garden and Chicago's Soldier Field uh, on behalf of the America First Committee and opposed the Lend-Lease Bill. Um, All of this earned him the extreme ire of then-president Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who essentially called him a Nazi sympathizer and said that he was hurting the United States' effort to prevent the Nazis from taking over Europe and murdering millions of people. Uh, Lindbergh's efforts, uh, of course, failed, uh, although he is probably the most popular and prominent politician in the United States uh, to oppose the United States' entry into World War II. Uh, There are some examples on the left, Uh, But he's certainly the most prominent example on the right wing. Uh, This has led him to be included in a lot of, you know, alternate histories about like fascism in the United States in the 1940s. Anyway, uh, when the United States did finally enter World War II, Lindbergh recanted and supported the war effort. But his uh, fame had really faded by this point, justifiably, because he had outed himself essentially as an advocate for imperialism racism, uh, and the most disgusting forms of brutality that the world had seen up until that point. Lindbergh's rhetoric rhetoric at this time was anti-Semitic and anti-British, which is actually a very specific anti-Semitic code. Uh, You know, it presents the British as a force of bankers and financiers who control the world from their, you know, 
position in the financial sector of London. These are very clear anti-Semitic tropes. These are tropes that you see uh, not just on the right and the anti-Semitic right in the United States, but throughout the world. Um, Lindbergh was also motivated by a fierce anti-communism, uh, which was another reason that a lot of folks opposed the United States entering World War II. In any case, uh, he spent the rest of his life um, living off of the fame that he had garnered for his transatlantic flight, uh, being a consultant to various uh, aeronautics firms and, you know, public speaker. He died in Hawaii of lymphoma on August 26th, 1974. So, Charles Lindbergh, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please uh, like, share, and subscribe. Please spread the word to friends, family, and comrades. Please leave a review. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. If you want to get in contact with me, check out my Gmail at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. And that's that's it. All right. I'll talk to you next week.